When you want to save a file in your favorite application, which icon do most apps offer up? Why, it's the image of a three and a half inch floppy disk, of course. Why is it that the universal icon for saving a file is an image of a technology that breathed its last breath sometime in 2007? This is a technology that most users today have never even seen. Well, the reason is that Apple burned the three and a half inch floppy save icon into our brains with the release of the Macintosh in 1998, which came with a three and a half inch floppy disk. All of their applications included a picture of that floppy disk for the save action. Other manufacturers followed suit, including Adobe and Microsoft. By the time the three and a half inch floppy had started being phased out just a few years later, the most primitive part of our brains had solidified this as the easiest to recognize icon when we didn't want to lose our work. Every time we clicked it and got confirmation that our work was saved, we got a feeling of relief and a squirt of dopamine in our brains. This cemented it in our mind and made it instantly available to us when we're looking to save. Now the image could have been a picture of a flying pig and we would still be using it today. This is the behavior of our limbic brain, called System 1 by Danny Kahneman in the seminal book Thinking Fast and Slow. It's been called our lizard brain, our monkey brain. It's the knee-jerk decision maker that makes decisions based on fight or flight. My guest, Tim Ash, calls this the primal brain. So why not reinvent the save icon? Why not something like a file folder with an arrow? Or even a cloud, since so much of our saving happens on the internet. Well, because when our lizard brain doesn't have a quick answer, when it doesn't see something familiar, it turns to our executive brain. This part of our brain analyzes things and makes decisions based on information. And when this happens, it creates cognitive load. This makes our applications harder to use, less satisfying. We make few decisions with our executive brain. It's our primal brain, our emotional fear-based brain that gets the first shot. So why are we using logic and rational thinking in so much of our marketing? Welcome to Intended Consequences, a podcast from Conversion Sciences. I'm Brian Massey, and I believe that anyone is capable of using behavioral science to predict the success of their marketing campaigns. Marketing magic is real, and I'll teach you how to harness it. You have to be very, very rigid in rejecting changes to it. So, you know, no, we're not going to put scrolling animations in there. Oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Mrs. or Ms. CEO. I know you like purple buttons, but that's not going on the site just because that's your favorite color. My guest Tim Ash started his career in the interwebs back in 1995. He and I have a lot in common. People think we're twins. For one thing, we both built web companies back in the OG internet days of the 90s. 
Now, on top of leading his CRO company, SiteTuners, Tim is a digital marketing keynote speaker. He's the founder of the Digital Growth Unleashed Conference, which at the time of this recording is coming up. And he's the author of the book, Landing Page Optimization. It's still one of the first books I recommend whenever someone wants to get up the learning curve on conversion optimization. And back in the day, I learned quite a bit from it myself. Now, to begin to understand how our visitors think, Tim suggests we stop looking inside our companies and turn our gaze outward. Listen in as Tim explains why you should always work backwards when it comes to a redesign. Start with your end users, understand your audience, then build. Now, this may sound intuitive to you, but very few of our cultures actually allow us to do this. Now, word of warning, Tim doesn't pull any punches. So tell me a little bit about how you got into this to begin with. What, what, what made you so analytical driven? I've been at this probably even a bit longer than you. Uh, I started back when Al Gore invented the interweb. So in 1995, I started my first internet consultancy and we were focused on developing websites, uh, database driven ones. I know crazy stuff. Um, and from there went to the beginning of the pay-per-click revolution with a company called GoTo, later Overture, later Yahoo Search, but basically when pay-per-click was taking off and we, so we were managing pay-per-click campaigns. And so that was great because you could measure the impact. You spend this much money, you make this much money. And so it was a really good business. And then we said, well, you know, we can do this better. Why don't we put up our own money? And this is just when affiliate marketing was taking off and drive some pay-per-click traffic to client landing pages and uh, keep the difference, whatever value we created. So we were a super affiliate for a lot of different products. Uh, I remember one month we made 17, we cleared 17,000 on ringtones <laughs> for your cell phone or for your regular phone. There were no, no smartphones yet. So, you know, that was wild and woolly. But the thing we realized with all of those campaigns is we were sending high quality traffic to crappy websites. And so we started talking to the companies we were affiliates for and saying, hey, let us fix your landing page or your website and we'll make a lot more money and you'll make a lot more money. And that was kind of right around the time when landing page optimization or conversion rate optimization was starting. So we were there right at the beginning. And eventually we jettisoned all of that pay-per-click marketing and the affiliate stuff and just became a conversion rate optimization agency. Do you have a do you have a sense for where conversion optimization or conversion rate optimization came from? What what was the genesis of that or the the, the moniker? Well, there's I, I the the name itself. I you know Google early on decided to tag it as landing page optimization because they're very campaign driven. Um, so that describes the where the traffic lands. But I always had a broader definition of landing pages than just campaign pages. It could be the homepage of your site. You know, that's a very important landing page for a lot of companies. Um, so we think it is optimizing the whole website or online experience. And so then conversion rate optimization kind of took off as a term because it described the, what you were doing, which is tweaking the efficiency of the website. So your conversion rate or the percentage of visitors that take action became the standard. But I think that's still too limiting. I think that we should talk about this as business optimization. I mean, 
more recently, uh, folks like Sean Ellis have used terms like growth hacking, and that's really kind of what real optimizers do. They'll look at everything from the business model to the traffic sources to the competitive landscape to the offline experiences, wherever there's value to be unlocked. So I think one of the distinctions in my mind between the UX crowd and the conversion optimization crowd is that user experience is something other people do, designers, uh, creatives, but conversion optimization and experimentation that goes around it is something we do. It's a part of um, our lives as marketers, as product managers, as, as business owners, as, as P&L people. What do you think about that? Is that a fair distinction? Uh, I'm not sure. I think that um, good user experiences are all about being efficient, not having friction. In fact, being invisible. So we don't even think about them as experiences. They just kind of happen naturally. To make something that's that elegant, that frictionless in an online setting means it's also going to be high converting or suited for its purpose. So I don't know. Uh, and I think that we're focused more in the online world on tools and campaigns. What the user experience people definitely get right is solving the right problems. Uh, I think that if you don't go into the wild, see your customers or prospects in their natural habitat, and understand that just some thing that's minor to you would really rock their world. As my friend Larry Marine, who's one of the top user experience people around, says that you're, you know, you're going to have a very elegant solution to the wrong problem. So I think that the UX people do much more in terms of understanding the context and the purpose of the experience. And so they've got to produce something or communicate something over to the people who are making the decisions, building the tools, manufacturing the products. What's the, what's, what's the gap? Why, why is it so hard for user experience to, for these invisible ex interfaces or these invisible experiences, as you said, to get implemented? What's in the way? Uh, well, I think that, you know, in a way, the UX folks are a little more kind of academic and researchy oriented. And the irony is they understand other people, but they can't, they communicate their end product in the form of, say, a rough wireframe. And the CEO doesn't want to see that or even the CMO. So they're going to just throw it over to the designers. And I may, I've met a few good ones in the sense of conversion good. But most of them are concerned with just, you know, pretty pictures or the latest design trends. And so they usually kind of overdo the design, emphasize the wrong things. They get the balance wrong. You know, it might be even a simple recipe to use an analogy. I'm making a cake. You need flour, salt, and sugar. Great. You mix those in the wrong proportions. It's not going to taste very good. So the, my experience with designers is if you go from a wireframe straight to a designer, they can't span the gap. They're going to just, you know, booger it up with all kinds of visual distractions and wrong priorities. So when we do deliverables, we typically take them past the wireframe stage and actually do visual mockups. They're still Photoshop or maybe make them in a quick tool like Instapage to be working pages. But the point is, we don't assume that the designer can do the translation in their heads. And can we just take a moment to uh, talk about parallax scrolling and scroll triggered animations and have you uh been able to find a scenario in which those improve things for the 
Uh, no, just say no to those things. You know where I am about visual distractions, especially loud graphics or, or worse yet, any kind of motion triggered stuff or video. Uh, just say no is, is my basic mantra. The only exception I found to that is if you have a background video loop uh, for an experiential website, that makes sense. So come to our conference, for example, I run a conference series um, and I keynote at all. Come to our conference. This is what it's like. You have video from last year, people smiling, laughing, the fun after events or a resort destination if you're in travel. Well, don't use still pictures for that. Use a video to, to kind of show the beautiful sandy beach and the crystal clear water and the smiling people poolside. So a uh, let's uh, typically an agency or a designer has designed this and added that because it is cool and the client is going to accept that in other words the client wants cool it's the classic novelty bias right what is it that gets in the way of that in other words a culture that is data driven how does it manage that relationship so that we stop and say well if we're going to have this video it needs to be relevant um, or we don't need to have it at all uh, talk about I think what you do is you actually start with your end users as the starting point for a website redesign or a landing page redesign. In other words, you say, who is showing up? What's their relationship to our website or our business? And what are the problems are they trying to solve? And can we support that? And you, so you're working back from an understanding of your audience and our audience, key audience segments. And then you say, okay, what's, what are the steps in the customer journey? What do we have for early stage people? Most companies bottom feed and they want to just the transactional part at the bottom of the funnel, but they're ignoring early stage and mid-stage people, which have their own completely different needs before they'll even pick up the phone or give you their credit card. And so you map the whole customer journey, make sure you have content to support the whole thing and to slide them down funnel. And then you know, once you've done that and you've built the wireframes and built the mockups, then you have to be very, very rigid in rejecting changes to it. So, you know, no, we're not going to put scrolling animations in there. And oh, I'm sorry, Mr. Mrs. or Ms. CEO, I know you like purple buttons, but that's not going on the site just because that's your favorite color. So you have to kind of insist on orthodoxy. You have to get sign off at every stage. Who is our customers? Sign off. Okay, what are the customer journeys look like and what do they care about? Sign off. How are we going to wireframe that to support it? Sign off. Visual designs and mockups, sign off. So when you get to the building, it should be pretty routine. It's, you know, you don't want to, to go through all of this and then have somebody say, well, you know, now our web development team is going to use that as a point of rough departure for the actual build, you know, which we've had happen. Yeah, we, we've, we've, I've heard those very words and of not to be named Fortune 100 client of ours. And uh, we were just floored. Well, you hit on something, though, that I think is kind of tough. So we have these sign offs, but if the executive wants the executive that pays my paycheck, uh, that has the promotion, hire, and fire capability. Wants the pink button. I'm, I'm, I tend to want to give him that. Now you are actually going into businesses and teaching businesses at a at a broader level, not just uh, digital marketing, how to use 
data to drive decisions, data psychology. In other words, you're trying to fix this problem. So what do you do in one of your workshops or one of your trainings that, that gets that hippo to lay off? What do, you, what do you do? And by hippo, you mean highest paid person's opinion, that hippo, not the fact that they're overweight, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Just checking. Uh, well, I, I think the, the key is to actually insist that they are involved in the process. Um, and to that's number one, but to do it appropriately. And what they care about is they speak only one language, which is money. So if you want the attention of a, a senior executive, you have to talk money to them. And so the goals of the project need to be couched in that. We are looking by doing this to lower the return rate or lower our churn rate of subscribers or lower our customer service costs or raise our average order value. Those are metrics that they operate on. So find out what's on their dashboard, what butters their bread, what gives them the bonus at the end of the year and say, I'm going to support that. Oh, yeah. by the way, you know, we can test that and we can even show you that it works better. So would you like us to take away that extra money we just made? Or do you want to and keep your purple button? Or would you want to keep the money? Then it's a different conversation. Does that make sense? It does. It does. Is there, um, do, do, do some organizations require that we kind of change that upper echelon or do you feel pretty confident that you can come into most organizations and begin to change hearts and minds to, to do these sorts of things? Because I think one of the things that, that leaders have a problem with is they maybe don't understand what's going on. So they feel like they have to fill the gap and, and review the copy and review the designs rather than letting the data decide. Yeah, well, it's, so actually, that's one of the advantages. If you're talking about a, a well-defined piece of real estate, a landing page or a registration flow or something like that, and you can test things, that's where the testing actually shuts up the hippo because you can say, great, we have these ideas. Please don't change ours. But, you know, your, your idea about the purple button, let's throw in a version that's got the purple button. And like I said, then... You let the numbers tell the story. Okay, if we annualize this, ours would have made this much more than yours. But great, yours did better than the original page we had. So that was a good idea. But we found an even better way to do it. So would you like us to bank that win? Or would you like to use the purple button one? I was talking to a conversion optimizer that said that people were afraid to come to her anymore because she kept turning up this data that you know showed when they were right. But as you and I know... Given a hundred ideas, most of them are going to be wrong or inconclusive. They're you know not going to help some things. Yeah, but you have a good point though. That I want to just explore for a second the idea of risk and the culture of the company because one of the things that we encourage when we come in and we set up a testing program and we've done this uh, for a number of companies, very different cultural one culturally that is. One of the things that we do is we encourage the sharing of results. We encourage the sharing of every test result. And that creates a tolerance for risk. In other words, if you know 70% of your tests are going to fail, quote unquote, it doesn't matter. You have the overall cost of the testing program. 70% of the tests don't pay off, but the 30% put a lot of money on your bottom line every year. So you, 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 you celebrate the failures along with the wins. You don't hide them in shame or sweep them under the rug. And in fact, you know, you actually, one of the things we've done is 
we've uh, suggested that some companies create betting pools and contests around which ideas are going to be the biggest thinkers. But what I mean is like you get a, a wider audience involved by actually having a little, you know, fantasy league or pool and betting on, you know, who's going to have the biggest stinker, uh, which one of the versions is going to. And th that makes it more fun. And it kind of defangs the idea of like, oh, you had a test that was unsuccessful. Therefore, you're incompetent or an idiot or, you know, you don't know what you're doing. And are there good ideas for how to because I, I think this is really a, a difficult thing is how you share test test data, test results without oversharing too much data. Um, any other good ideas for how to expose the rest of the organization to what you're learning? Yeah. So they think there's uh, there's three things that need to happen. One is you need a central repository where you, that's public, where you have all this stuff. Uh, second is I think it's important to get these learnings out to the larger marketing organization. In other words, uh, somebody had a success um, in the U.S. Does that same idea translate to the U.K. or Australian markets because they're English speaking also? Or are there cultural differences in those? So if you're actually talking about that kind of stuff, where should we roll this out? Should we try this on other traffic sources? Should we um, you know, use the same idea of raising prices elsewhere in the company, for example, if you're doing pricing tests? Uh, those are those are good conversations to have. And finally, you have to say without oversharing, you need different levels of detail for different audiences. So we typically help our clients design a dashboard for upper management, which is very different than the one for the marketing department, which is in turn different than the very detailed one that the conversion rate optimization team uses to do their daily work. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have a preference for, you talked about storing storing the results, having a central repository. Do you have a, a preference for the tool or the, the format that that takes? You know, in all of our work, I would say we're violently tool agnostic. And uh, what I mean by that is uh, companies don't install tools or platform level stuff or parts of their marketing technology stack without a considerable investment. Uh, and they can be good choices, bad choices. That stuff could be brittle and difficult to work with or uh, limited in terms of its features or has poor customer support, whatever. They went down that road. They chose that tool. They implemented it and integrated it, and someone made that decision. So the last thing we want to do is you know, tear it out and say there's a better way to do things. So we tend to work with whatever they have in place. Yeah, one of the things I'm very sensitive to is doing all this work and then having it lost. Whenever we go in and start with a new client, the first thing we ask for is all of their market research, whatever it is, because we can pull hypotheses from that. And inevitably, they are like, huh, who had that last? That was six months ago. And it's in somebody's drawer collecting dust or on somebody's hard drive, and they haven't accessed it since the agency that did this, this study has delivered it. To talk about how conversion optimization or these practices of uh, making decisions with data can turn that into something actionable, to turn it into money, to, make, to follow on your, your previous point? Well, one of the things that we do when we have optimization initiatives, we'll come in and do an optimization strategy. The first day is you know, training your people on site. The second is your user experience. The third is a focus on the company. And there we're looking at much more business level things like What's your business model? What's your positioning? What skill sets do you have internally? What marketing technologies do you have in-house? How do you measure and track things? Those kind of things determine what they're able to do because 
you know, um, you can't install advanced stuff in an environment that doesn't support it culturally or organizationally. So I think that it's a walk, crawl, run situation. And what companies should actually be doing is not sprinting for advanced capabilities. The easiest things to fix are your weak points. And are you saying that doing these big market studies and stuff is a little bit more advanced than most organizations can handle where they should maybe be focusing on more point problems? Well, what, what I mean is that you can't really, what's the best way to put this? If, it, if you can't do anything to it, this is also one of my one of the things I talk about for online forums. If you're not going to do something with the data, don't ask for it in a forum, right? If it's not actionable. And it's the same thing. So you're going to do these really detailed you know, segmentation analysis and psychographics on your audience and all this stuff. Okay, then what? Unless you have, for example, a personalization system on top of your content management system, you can't surface different experiences for those folks. So what was the point of doing that detail drill down if you can't act on it? I see. I get it. Uh, very interesting. One of the things that we see out there, and especially if I'm a marketer in an organization, is that the company sees their brand as very brittle. So they protect it at all corners. And, and any change that impinges on it is going to be quickly shot down by the, the gatekeepers of the brand. How do you get a client past that sort of thing? Is the, uh, mm, that's, a, that's a great question. I've done, I do a keynote on the you know, ending the war between branding and direct response. And one of the, the key insights for, from that talk is that the brand isn't something that lives in your brand book. The brand is something that lives in the minds of your customers and prospects. And that's a much messier picture. I mean, if you're Comcast, you need to do a big name change so people won't hate you as much. And there are millions of people that will hate you until they die. Uh, you know, you, you can't change their brand association just by changing the logo or having a new tagline. That's not what the brand is. It's the emotional associations inside of people's heads. When I say Sony or Apple or Lululemon, that's what the brand is. And so, you know, as direct response online marketers, we get to play with different triggers to see how well messaging aligns with the real brand. So the real work is to not put it in a book, but to experiment with different triggers and see how they resonate. Yeah. I'm always, you know, saying we're not a brand company, but really the best brand experience you can have is satisfactorily finding what you want, getting what you want, accomplishing a goal on the website. So as we're improving the user experience, we are building the brand and, in, and to your point, in a much more emotionally deep brain way. Well, any final words for our audience? Uh, we've covered a pretty broad range of topics, but any toe holds you've got for them? Yeah, I just stop thinking about things inside out from the perspective of your company or your department and start thinking outside in with the unmet needs of your visitors or prospects. Become a critic advocate for for them and not for your company and you'll actually help your company the most that way now when you get back to the office your team has data it has insights on your visitors it has insights on your prospects and your customers it's time to let this data out into the open whether you're leading a team or a part of a team invite 
your PPC team to come and talk about what ads are working and which don't. Invite your email marketing people to come in and talk about what subject lines are killing it and which are failing. Ask your sales department to tell you which customers buy the most, which products are most popular, and what questions they have when they get on the phone with a customer. This is the beginning of understanding your audience from their perspective. And it's the first steps towards turning your view outward. Okay, scientists, that's it for this week.